technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... The question is, who are you without the technology? And who are you with it? And if you can't answer that question, it's because you haven't given yourself time and space to to understand or observe who you really are. And, and it doesn't start with like asking somebody else. It starts with asking ourselves. It doesn't feel always so comfortable asking that question, but I think it, it feels counterintuitive. But it's mostly because we've been asking and preparing children at school to ask lots of questions of the outside world and never inward. You're listening to the Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth. A Nokia original series. Who are we? And does our everyday use of technology change our answer? The futurithmic writer and founder of The Darkest Horse Ventures, a minority and women-owned next-generation consultancy, educates companies about radical inclusion and the health and well-being of their workers. But in an age where our heads and hearts are stuffed into little glowing rectangles in our pockets, how does Shantae Thurman disconnect? I caught up with her midway through a frazzled day attending to her twins, a growing company, and her Twitter account. You've got a pinned tweet on your Namaste Shantae Twitter account, which is awesome, by the way. Thank you. It reads, <laughs> Our number one purpose as human beings in this lifetime is to wake up and move closer to consciousness. Define what you mean by move closer to consciousness. Yes. And first of all, thank you so much for noticing that. Um, I wrote that tweet in, let's see, 2015 after a meditation session I had. I typed that up. And to me, consciousness is the awareness, right, that we have as sentient beings. And in my experience, I'm a human being in this lifetime. Um, but being aware of my thoughts, being aware of my reality or um, even an altered state of reality and in, in this particular tweet, what I was really trying to get at was a sense that if I do nothing else, right, if, if, if I should die tomorrow, the fact that I have realized that consciousness is the point of, of my existence, I would have fulfilled my life's destiny in this lifetime. Do you get the sense that most of us are just simply going through the motions every day? We're virtually automatons staring at our little glowing rectangles on our way from point A to point B. Unfortunately, yes, I do. I think that um, we have been programmed in that sense to to pay attention to our phones and our outer world versus our inner world. Um, and I think, and so for me, if I was going to go back even to that consciousness definition, it's my inner world and that obsession with trying to figure out, well, who am I and why am I here? I constantly ask myself that question. I don't know that many people do. It took me a while to come to that realization, and that happened through some experiences I had, um, you know, with, with spirituality and pretty much giving up uh, the, the identity and the ways in which I was, like the worldview I was raised in, going through sort of an existential crisis and realizing, holy crap, I don't know anything. And what have I been doing? I've been head down, looking at books, looking at my phone, looking at computers, being obsessed with the world, Meghan Markle and Harry, like who cares? I should be more concerned with myself and how I'm feeling inside every time I take a bite of food, every time I drink a, you know, I take a drink of something I'm, I'm ingesting, every time I have an emotion or 
a traumatic um, experience. I should be observing those emotions, but I wasn't. Do you have a case on your smartphone? I do. You do. Okay. I'm one of these guys who believes that uh, we put so much energy into the intelligent design of these devices that it's a shame that we have to cover them all up. They're so incredibly elegant and beautiful. And I find myself turning my iPhone 11 Pro over and over in my hand, just absent-mindedly playing with it. Mm. And I came to quickly realize that what I'm doing is I'm bonding with this inanimate object and making it feel more like it's a part of me. Mm. And, and that that is a psychological connection that I'm programming myself to have. How do we deprogram ourselves so that we don't replace consciousness with technology? I think the first step is to actually seek and find space to have your own kind of, if you can, a meditative practice um, that is solo. And I think, you know, the other thing is we are tribal and we do like to, to go in packs, but there is a lot of benefit to sitting by oneself and having, um, you know, this, this space and time to just observe and to feel in your body, you know, the, the experiences that you're having as a human and away from others. I think that's really critical, um, you know, to, to carve out that time. And even if it's, I started with 10 minutes a day and it, I kept bumping it up to 15 to 20 to 30. And, you know, at my, at the height, I was at like two and three hours a day in meditative practice, whether that was in yoga, you know, going through some yoga asana poses or, you know, spending time in meta meditation, um, things of that nature. And, and that's how I was able to deprogram myself. I also stopped sleeping with TVs and the smartphones in my, in my room. So the idea being is that if we can divorce ourselves from our technology, even for a brief period of our waking lives, that that gives us a greater opportunity to focus on the things that are actually important. Yeah. And I want to say this, I don't know that for some people, their, their smartphones and their virtual world is actually important to them. But I don't know that that's the purpose because I feel like the question is, who are you without the technology and who are you with it? And if you can't answer that question, it's because you haven't given yourself time and space to, to understand or observe who you really are. And, and it doesn't start with like asking somebody else. It starts with asking ourselves. It doesn't feel always so comfortable asking that question, but I think it, it feels counterintuitive, but it's mostly because we've been asking and preparing children at school to ask lots of questions of the outside world and never inward. You write on futurismic.com about your twins. Yes. And their love of technology. Oh my God, they do, they love it. But their interests don't intersect with mommy approved STEM oriented apps, do they? <laughs> yeah, we're working on it, but they, let me tell you that they, they are like, oh, they are, they are like the evangelicals of, of kid YouTube. <laughs> They should, they should be selling somebody's product because that's how much of like, you know, that's how much they cheerlead and, and cheer for these little kids on YouTube who are unboxing and, and have their own channels and stuff. It's unreal. I was blown away. My daughter, and with un, absolutely no prompting from tech dad whatsoever, <laughs> had determined that before she put together her Christmas lists, before she put together her birthday lists, before she decided what it was she wanted to ask for as a big present, she would go on YouTube and watch these unboxing videos to get a sense as to whether this was something she really wanted. Oh, wow. How old is she? Well, she's now 13 going on 19. 
But at the time, she was eight, nine, ten years old. How old are your twins? Five. Five. So we're in the early stages of understanding the negative impact of technology on our lives. Right. We're still training each other not to pull out our smartphones at the table during a dinner party. You know, do you get the sense that the intersection of technology and consciousness is something society is equipped to educate our children about in the first place? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think we are. I think it's going to take. So I'm, I'm from the school of thought that when we want to make a change behaviorally on, you know, especially we want to see it kind of played out in society, what needs to likely happen is this approach where we're teaching the whole family, not just a parent and not just a student or, or, their, or their young child, um, but we need to do like the young children, the parents, and even grandparents, because it really comes down to, okay, what's your worldview, right? What values do you hold and as it pertains to this life and what do you feel is important? And if consciousness, mindfulness, you know, being aware of yourself and others is a top value, then we do need to, in some ways, deprogram and separate ourselves from technology to know that we are, we are not our technology, we are not our titles, we are not our jobs, we are not our cars or our houses or anything material. We are ourselves. We are, we are, a, we have a body, but we are not our body. Hmm. Does that make sense? The the idea being that we've got all these trappings around us, but they're they're intended, or at least they're supposed to be intended to build us up, not become who we are. Right. And the thing is, is that I feel we, we are as humans, right, or as even sentient just beings with awareness and consciousness and this cognitive, um, you know, intelligence we have, that we, we need to understand, like, the totality of, of life and the wholeness of life. So I'm not saying that we can separate it from each other because I think that the, the complete total experience is sometimes, you know, it's, it's integrating this technology, but doing so in a mindful way. But first, what needs to sort of happen is the fact that you acknowledge the fact that you are these, that you are a soul or that you are this stream of consciousness without the body and without all the trappings, as you mentioned. And once we get there, then we can work on integration and we can work on doing so mindfully throughout the rest of our human experience, because those things are there for us to have a transhuman experience, to make our lived experience much better uh, and, and more desirable so that we can do whatever we need to in this lifetime as souls to, to get through like what I would say karma in this lifetime. You wrote that seven out of 10 parents under 45 own at least one Internet of Things device and one in three of those owners believe that IoT makes them better parents. So I think you're going to love this. Mm -hmm. At CES 2020, we discovered Pampers has teamed up with Lumi to create an IoT diaper. I saw that. It tracks number ones and number two sleep patterns and all for just 60 bucks a month. Oh, man. What are your thoughts? Well, if it could change them, I would be like, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> you change that dark diaper and you throw it away and I don't have to deal with it. Oh, I'm there, buddy. Especially when I had twins. It's all I was looking for. <laughs> The argument that they had made to me was that, you know, parents are already keeping track of all of their children's bodily functions mm -hmm. when they're awake, when they're asleep and things like that. And they're passing this information off to the doctor, the pediatrician's keeping on top of these things. And this is just a, a more digital way to go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you agree? Like, it, it feels to me like a, a solution looking for a problem. Here's my conundrum. I 
I'm, I'm obsessed with tech. I love it. Like you, like we're, we're, we're reporting on it. We're in it. We want to know it. And I appreciate it, but I also want to keep a healthy balance in my life. And also like, you know, if these companies want my, my children's data or my data, then I'm from the school of thought that they need to pay me directly and not pay somebody else. And they can have my data if I so choose. Oh, but they're, they're, they're only charging us 60 bucks for the service. If, if, <laughs> if, you, if they were, if you, they had to pay you, you know, it'd be $120. Oh gosh. It's like, we should get a rebate on it. Like, are you kidding me? Their argument might be they're already giving you a rebate <sighs> on it. So therefore <sighs> you have to give us your private information. It's like, no, we don't have to. You want it and you want it so badly because they want to predict with personalized medicine and it's around the sense, like there's a lot of folks in healthcare, you know, which is the, the industry that I come from first. I'm, I'm a nurse. I went to nursing school, got a BSN, got into public health, and then got into community health. Hey, listen, from the very beginning, um, as a nurse, that's God's work. And yeah. I firmly believe that there are certain people in this world, firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses, teachers. Yes. Whatever you want, take it. <laughs> And people who serve our military. <laughs> Precisely. You know, there yeah. are certain people who are, are net contributors to society. And I, 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 I'm, I'm a huge fan of the nursing industry and, and the kind of work that you do. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't easy. It was just why I was like, I'm not going to survive here. I can't wipe butt all day. My mom, my mom tried to warn me, but I just, I didn't listen. I went into nursing school thinking that was how I was going to change the world. Um, and I got there and I realized, wow, uh, there's a whole bunch we don't know. And you know what? A lot of the a lot of the ailments and the uh, conditions that we have in terms of chronic conditions that doctors are so obsessed with trying to keep under control right now to keep their costs under control is because of the fact that we have patients who are unaware. See, they're not they're not very conscious of themselves. So when they eat some sugar, they don't know that they that they're not sensing their diabetic symptoms. Mm. When they are under stress, they're not, they're not even suspecting or aware of the fact that they might have angina and shortness of breath because they're not in touch with their inner self uh, and they haven't spent enough time. It's loud. I mean, think about it from the minute that these children are born these days, there's constantly something there to interact with, whether it's TV or a phone or a family member, and there's lots of talking and not enough quiet and stillness. And so, I mean, I couldn't believe how much I had been missing, just kind of walking through life you know, unaware and thinking I was doing, I was a great citizen. Don't get me wrong. I'm doing all the right things, but completely unaware of my inner emotions and the feelings I was having inside somatically in my body, which would be contributing to these chronic conditions that the physicians want to know about that are payers like the, you know, the, the health insurance companies they want to know about. And the only reason why they want to know about those is because you have a high risk, you know, plan and it's in their best interest, interest, actuarial interest, to make sure they understand and predict when you're going to get that chronic condition, such as cancer, such as, you know, coronary artery disease or diabetes. They want to know that so that they can protect their risk and their assets. So then let's talk about the technologies that we can be leveraging to move closer to consciousness. What do you see as, as some of those transformational technologies as we move through the early stages of the 21st century that we can leverage to make us more human? I believe that probably the one of the first and most important ones is going to be like, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, or, you know, mixed reality. Um, I think that it allows us to get into this because I think, first of all, 
you know, we're all avatars, right? I mean, in some way. And to be able to kind of get into this altered state of reality, imagine what that might do for somebody who's facing cancer who said, you know, in reality, in real life, I, I feel like I don't have an option, I'm going to die. But if I can put on this he- this headset and see myself healthy and kind of reintegrate um, it into the world in a different, maybe in a different city or a different world altogether with new friends and there's lots of sunshine and happiness and rainbows, I might start to have a new perception um, you know, of, of my current situation and therefore would change the trajectory of my condition and the prognosis. I think that's going to be transformative. Um, there's already studies that are that are kind of indicating this, and this is a, an area that I'm going to be spending most of my time and interest in as well. I think it has everything to do with you know chronic and short-term uh, illness. I think it has a lot of uh, potential to help us with our everyday wellness and just human potential in general. Well, we had talked on just the first episode of Futurismic with Galit Ariel about. Oh, that was a good one. Thank you. That, with uh, but the F benefits of augmented reality in that medical environment, you know, if nothing other than, you know, giving children the ability to walk from one end of their hospital uh, to the other, being, you know, f- uh, directed by a little animated bear to, right. as, as you point out, those who are on the autism spectrum who mm-hmm. might need some help socially with pop-up responses to questions that they may encounter in the real world. And if AR is that um, or VR to a lesser degree, I can imagine, is that a fundamental technology that helps us increase our level of consciousness. I suppose all the underlying technologies that make AR possible in the real world are that fundamental basis for what gets us to that new level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with you. And it's the most exciting one. I mean, I'm trying to think, I, I, I mean, obviously a lot of people talk a lot about AI too and machine learning, but to me, it's nothing compared to this. Um, and I think also the internet, I mean, I won't, I won't um, downplay the power of the internet of things and connected health, connected devices. But I think, like I said, there's a fine line there with extracting people's data and paying them, uh, you know, respectively for it when, when you're taking it and making millions and billions off of it. Well, you wrote for us that you're predicting that the widespread adoption of smart devices and IoT at home will become the new love language of this generation. Yes. Oh, absolutely. What do you mean by that? For example, if I want to do a nice thing for my mom, sometimes I might order her a coffee at Starbucks, but for my app, you know, she lives really close and say, hey, mom, I just ordered you a Starbucks or she'll do it sometimes, too. And like, that's her love language to me, my mom, to say, I bought you a coffee really easily. Go pick it up or go through the drive through. There it is waiting. Oh, wait a minute. So my my daughter's grandmother, my wife's mom, um, expresses her love by baking. Every time we go over, we leave with a tin of something. Ah. Are you telling me this is the high-tech 21st century version of that? It is, because guess what? Eventually, she can... Her, her, her stove can come on when she's not there. She can put those puppies into the oven early, walk out, you know, bake them when she's not there, stop it while with her app. You know, eventually, if you had um, if you had enough money and resources, you probably could get a robot to take them out of that oven for you and have them waiting for you. Maybe even take a drone over to your place and drop them. And so the idea of smart devices and IoT is the new love language of the generation. It's leveraging these new technologies to express love and affection for other human beings, people you actually know, not some faceless emoji laden jerk on Twitter. 
Not yet. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I definitely, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my own family and how I might use technology to, to enhance and augment our lives, our daily lives. Like, what do I need to do as every day, every morning to get my children out of the door? How can I make it, you know, easier and better for my significant other? And how could he do the same for me? Or how can I, how might I help the people who are watching my children after school? And many times I, I realized I was doing that through connected devices and apps. You know, we went ahead and bought um, my father-in-law an Alexa against my better judgment, I think, because I was like, I don't know, this is a slippery slope. But he came over for Christmas. He saw ours. He was like, this is so cool. And he's 80. Um, and, you know, my love language was to buy this for him so that it might make his, you know, everyday life a little bit easier. He can check the weather. He can call us. He can listen to music from it. So I went ahead and bought it. And I figured, well, hey, he's 80. They can't, you know, he'll be, he'll, he'll be long gone. And he knows this when they probably are going to start monetizing his data in like 20 years. So why not? So how is he, how is he do, doing with this, uh, the, this new modern technology that you've put in his house? It sort of reminds me of the Saturday Night Live sketch where it's Alexa for grandparents and they keep getting the name wrong. It's Allegra. It's, you know, it, 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 she's not answering the way it's supposed to. He's getting confused and frustrated. Yeah, that has happened. Uh, we already had to like, you know, hey, how do we set this up? <laughs> We're like, oh, gosh. Um, if only. I was like, can Alexa come ready to, to, to talk anybody through with instructions? That would be great. Uh, or plug it, plug themselves right in. Um, so we've had some issues there, but the thought was like, he said the thought was so like moving. He was like, thank you so much. This is awesome. I almost bought the other, the other Alexa device. I forgot the name of it now where there's like the video, you know, you can right, put the, it anywhere. The echo show, the echo show. That's what it was. Cause you know, my significant other was like, no, we're not buying that for him. <laughs> that's going too far. The video. No, 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 no. But I'm like, well, eventually, I don't know that we're going to have a choice with some of these, you know, uh, technologies that come into some of these people's houses and even like long-term care for, for elderly folks. Who's not to say that you might check your parent into or, you know, sign them up in, in long, in long-term care and the whole entire place is connected. Like you might not have a choice. It's going to be, there's, there's hospital beds with sensors, there's slippers with sensors, pillows, you know, the TV screens, mirrors. I mean, it's all going to happen whether we like it or not. You founded The Darkest Horses, a minority and women-owned consultancy firm with a focus on four key points, radical inclusion, mm -hmm. the future of work, emerging technology, of which we've been discussing, and health, well-being, and human potential. Right. I'm interested in point one. At what point does inclusion no longer become radical? God, I don't know that we'll get there. I think this country is, for, for example, this country, we've never known radical inclusion because we've been radically, radically exclusive and, and we, we radically set up a racist society, unfortunately, as we know. Was just with, I mean, I know, do you live in Canada or are you living in the United States right now? I'm in Canada. Well, you have a past then. Canada is not so bad. Oh, we, we, we have our own dark history, too. You have your own thing? Okay. Sure. It's, you know, I think that we, cause because of the way this country was founded and built, that it's, it, there's, it's just been radically segregated and exclusive and not inclusive. And the reason why I, I was using the word radical is because it's like, 
we've been talking a lot really nicely about, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, cultural awareness and, and diversity and cultural competency. And I'm like, yeah, great. You know, I've, I'm a millennial technically um, or a zennial. And for as long as I can remember, we've talked a lot about this concept of, oh, we should be colorblind. And this is how I was trained. Like, I was brought up, indoctrinated in this uh, as a child, and that Martin Luther King Jr. did all these great things for this country. And, you know, look at now we, we went from segregation to integration. And I'm like, great. But I still walk down the street and people have called me the N-word. And I have still experienced people at school. The boys just recently came home and said that somebody told them that they were brown and that you know, so it's like, great, it's 2019 and 20, and my children and I are still facing some of the same things. There's nothing radically inclusive about that. We need to move to a place where people are very aware of who they are, their differences, celebrate those differences, be okay with the fact that we're different, and then figure out what the gaps are so we can come together as humanity. When we spoke with uh, Rocky Scopoliti um, about this, he, the author of Youthquake had a very valid uh, point that there's actually more of a similarity between the millennial generation and the boomer generation than either the boomers or the millennials are willing to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And that is that both of those generations, when they were in their 20s, were very idealistic, were very focused on societal change, very focused on environmental issues. All mm. the types of things we're dealing with today, the hippies back with that's what we used to call the boomers mm -hmm. when they were in their 20s that the hippies were very much interested in um, changing the world for the better and the reason why they failed and became the me generation of the 80s with the cocaine fueled selfishness that the millennials today will blame uh, for why we are where we are today the difference between the boomer of the 20 in their 20s and the millennial in their 20s is the millennial now can leverage technology to get the message out and to rally people behind ideas and concepts in a way that the hippies simply couldn't because all they had was a printing press that they could distribute flyers on poles in their local community. <laughs> uh, how do we leverage technology for radical inclusion? I think we've seen people doing that right now. I, most recently, I think I've seen folks who are who are organizing and you you know utilizing reality or excuse me um, some augmented reality and virtual reality. I've seen little um, subsets of this research. I've also seen lots of folks obviously using like you know their apps and and dropping location and 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 helping them organize at at physical events as well, which I think is great. Um, the power of you know let's not forget the power of platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. As much as I sometimes make fun of them and. They annoy me. They actually are very powerful in disseminating information and making sure that people have access to it, regardless of where they are. I guess I should say um, not everyone in the world, because there are certain places like China, for example, where you can't get onto certain platforms. But for the most part, we, we're going to make the assumption that people can get around those with firewalls or get around those firewalls and perhaps uh, access this information if, if and when they're ready. Are you confident that we will be able to leverage technology in a way that previous generations were unable to, such that we don't have to have a conversation at some point in the not-too-distant future about inclusion needing to be radical? Oh, that's a tricky one. I think I'm confident in the sense that we're going to leverage uh, technology regardless, whether it be for good or for evil. We've seen that, and I think there's both sides to it. 
with good comes the, the bad. Um, as it pertains to radical inclusion, one of the other ways I kind of envision that virtual reality or mixed reality could work is, for example, if you're a person and your whole life you've been called black or you've been called the N-word and you want to know what it's like to not have your color of your skin get in the way of your lived experience, then you can go build an avatar that's blue or purple or pink or whatever, a color that doesn't really matter. Maybe you live in a different world where people are not like the main kind of character. It's like, you know, some, some other being. And it will give you an altered state of reality and experience to say, wow, this is possible. And I can get along with people who don't look like me. There's actually come to realize it doesn't even matter what they look like because who cares what their bodily shape is or their color is. We, are, we have more in common through this like experience that we're having right now, which could be a video game. I mean, how, how shape-shifting and life tra- you know, or transformational would that be? I, I think it would be profound. Well, we got a sense of that with Ready Player One, mm. where one of the central characters' avatar bears zero resemblance to her real-life character to the point where we didn't even know she was female mm-hmm. or black mm-hmm. until we met her in person. And the right. central character is shocked by this. <laughs> it's it's like, whoa, right? And so that can be, I, I, I would love to see more of that because I think it's really powerful to have a conversation. What should be happening is we're talking about that in middle schools and high schools around the country, around the world. Like, what what does that mean when your reality is tested to, you know, with, with this game that you just went through, that you just had, and you didn't even know, does it matter? And you realize maybe it doesn't. I mean, sure it does if you want to maintain the worldview that you were born with, but many of us want to add to it or augment it itself. And so if, if that's the case, then, then we should be happy to, to destruct these things and reconstruct them. Well, here's hoping that by the year 2044, reality is not the ugly place that Ernest Klein predicted. I hope not. But I'm also hoping that if it is, that there's a technology that will allow me to escape it in some way, shape or form just for a little bit. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world changing ideas all by visiting futurismic.com. The Futurismic podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series. 